Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. That's why Judge Barrett's integrity, wisdom, and commitment to the rule of law is so important. She will be critical to the preservation of the public's perception of the, of the legitimacy of the court. Don't forget what's happening here, because it's a travesty, a travesty, a travesty for the Senate, a travesty for the country, and it will be an inerasable stain on this Republican majority forevermore. As you might have recognized, those were the voices of two U.S. Senators. The first was Utah Republican Mitt Romney, and the second was New York Democrat and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. They were both speaking about the same issue, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the U.S. Supreme Court. Clearly, Schumer was opposed, and he predicted that the confirmation of Barrett would turn out to be a travesty and a stain on the legacy of the Republican majority. By contrast, Romney not only supported confirmation, but he also argued that Barrett's ascension to the court would actually strengthen its legitimacy. Why does the legitimacy of courts, and of the Supreme Court in particular, matter? Much has been said about the controversial manner in which Republicans moved forward with Barrett's nomination and confirmation, even while citizens were casting votes in a presidential election. How might the Republicans' choice to do so affect people's trust in the court? What might the consequences be if Democrats respond by increasing the number of seats on the court? And how might race matter here as it does in so many areas? These are the kinds of questions I discussed with Sarah Benish. Benish holds a PhD from Michigan State University and is now Associate Professor and Chair of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. A self-described Supreme Court junkie, she studies a number of topics, including Supreme Court decision-making, Circuit Court of Appeals, and also State Court decision-making, and in her current work, she studies the legitimacy of the courts. I now share our conversation in this episode, which is titled, Legitimate Authority. So I um, studied under Harold Spaeth at Michigan State University, and Harold is one of the first um, researchers to really talk about 
the attitudes of the Supreme Court and how much they matter to decision making. And so he really sort of beat this into the graduate students uh, there. And so, of course, you know, we all believe in the attitudinal model now. Um, And so for a long time, I studied decision making on the circuit courts, especially, but also on the Supreme Court. And it just became clearer and clearer to me that in terms of, you know, I, I think a lot of academics have that moment where they're like, you know, is anybody reading this? Does this really matter? Like, what am I doing? Right. And for me, um, studying courts without really considering how they have power is really just, you know, in some ways, you know, just sort of lacks the relevancy that I really wanted to have. And so I got more and more convinced, became more and more convinced that it was really about legitimacy and that we really had to understand how people interact with these institutions and why an institution like the courts have so much power in our democracy, um, when really, by all accounts, there's not much they can do if people don't want to implement their decisions. And so legitimacy just to me became something that could really connect me more fully uh, to things that mattered. So it feels as if you may have already begun to answer this next question, but people talk about the legitimacy of the court. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, by reputation, seems committed to sustaining the legitimacy of the court. But why does the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in particular, or also courts more generally, why does that legitimacy matter? Um, Because it's everything. I think, you know, without uh, legitimate courts and without legitimate institutions in general, people don't bring their problems to government to solve. They don't use the channels of, of normal procedures to solve their problems. They go out on their own. Um, they don't implement decisions. They don't follow policies. They're, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, I am not a political theorist by any stretch of the imagination, but there's, you know, so much political theory about why we need government. Uh, and so if we really need government, we also really need people to buy into it. And so Chief Justice Roberts knows that the Supreme Court, among all of the institutions, is even more dependent on legitimacy for its power, given that it doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have an army that it can send out, right? Um, All of the sort of powers that the Supreme Court has and the impacts that it's had on society are because other institutions and people have allowed it to have that impact. They have acceded to its rulings and implemented its decisions. And so without legitimacy, I, I don't even know what the what they do anymore. I'm reminded of uh, the story that uh, through my very careful, rigorous uh, Wikipedia research uh, I've, I've seen uh, is seen is thought of as possibly apocryphal, but I'm reminded of the story of uh, uh, president uh, Andrew Jackson saying of a John Marshall ruling, well, let him enforce it. Uh, the idea being the court doesn't actually have the, the, uh, uh, agents uh, uh, authorized to use force to enforce its own ruling. It depends upon legitimacy. Right, exactly. So there's been a lot of talk about uh, the actions of the Senate Republicans uh, uh, led by Mitch McConnell uh, now uh, and um, uh, back when uh, in 2000. Uh, 16, uh, when Scalia died, if I have the year right, I think I do, Scalia died early in that year, and it was uh, an election year. And uh, McConnell said, well, we can't actually move forward during an election year and uh, confirm um, an Obama uh, nominee. And so uh, Obama nominated Merrick Garland, um, and the nomination languished and languished and languished. And the rest is history. Uh, Trump is elected. Neil Gorsuch is nominated. Neil Neil Gorsuch uh, is confirmed. 
Uh, and that just goes to show that Republicans will not confirm during an election year. Oh, wait, in 2020, <laughs> that's exactly what they do when later in the year, um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. And uh, anyone who's been paying attention knows that Amy Coney Barrett has just been confirmed. And so I wonder if you think that the Republicans' inconsistency in their behavior is going to do lasting damage to public trust in the Supreme Court. Here's, here's what we know about public trust in the Supreme Court, and I think this is important. Part of what we think, and we obviously only know what we know, right, through scientific empirical research, yep. part of what we think is that um, people tend to have more faith in the Supreme Court because of the way in which it makes its decisions. That is, people tend to feel like the Supreme Court is a principled decision maker. It doesn't have um, the same sort of political, partisan um, fissures and fights and arguments that like a Senate would have. And so consistently in poll after poll, people prefer the Supreme Court or, or at least rate the Supreme Court more highly than any of the other institutions of government and many other institutions in society in general. And so we suspect that that is really important that those decisions re- continue to have the feeling of principle, that they are decisions that are driven in some way by something other than just ideology. And now I talk to you in my origin story about um, my uh, mentor who was all about the attitudinal model and all about um, uh, confirming and showing and demonstrating the influence of ideology on votes. In fact, that's our best well, well, predictor. Well, and Go ahead. Just, just for the benefit of listeners who are not uh, experts in judicial politics, uh, be explicit. What is the attitudinal model? So the attitudinal model suggests that justices decide cases in the ways that they do because of their ideology, their policy preferences. So we would expect that a conservative justice would decide cases conservatively. A liberal justice would decide cases liberally. And that is- Wait, wait, wait. I'm confused. They call balls and strikes, right? Oh, sure, sure, right. Because law is so perfectly clear <laughs> and, and lacking in any sort of inconsistency, right? And, and the Constitution, too. Um, right. So we know that because of the Supreme Court's institutional position and, and its design, it can take only those cases where there are credible arguments on both sides. And then when it decides those cases, our very best predictor for their decisions is the ideology of the justices. Now, we could spend an entire podcast talking about how you measure ideology. But generally speaking, justices appointed by Republican presidents are conservative and justice appointed by Democratic presidents are liberal. So interestingly, we as scientists know that ideology matters greatly. And it turns out the Senate knows that too, right? Because the Senate has epic battles over Supreme Court nominations and confirmations, and they wouldn't care if any old judge would do, right? And so because we know that this happens, um, and still we hold this idea that the public will approve of the Supreme Court, have confidence in the Supreme Court, uh, give legitimacy, afford legitimacy to the Supreme Court only if it feels like they're making principled decisions, we have a bit of a problem, right? But we know that people also know that ideology matters. So when we ask people in a survey, what do you think drives Supreme Court decisions? They understand yeah. that Scalia was different than Ginsburg, um, but they still feel like there's something principled, something nonpartisan about the way the Supreme Court makes decisions. And so to the extent that any sort of thing that happens to the Supreme Court 
erodes that feeling, then we might have problems for legitimacy. So in terms of the Senate's behavior, I think the Senate's behavior will affect the Republicans in the Senate and the legitimacy that people have for that institution. I don't especially expect it to affect legitimacy of the Supreme Court unless and until we start seeing a change in decision-making um, on, on that court or co decisions coming from the Supreme Court. So if we see a string of exceedingly political decisions yeah. that are six to three, yeah. um, then, we'd, then we'd have a discussion about that. Is there any basis in the scholarly literature to support the idea that Amy Coney Barrett might take such concerns into account in her decision-making and or that uh, others on the court, chief among them, the chief, might, uh, in an effort to bolster the court's legit legitimacy, um, urge that uh, Barrett and the other conservatives think about that so that we don't see a string of six, three conservative decisions that could undermine the court's legitimacy. Here's where things get difficult. Yep. So um, it turns out the Supreme Court justices don't like to talk to researchers <laughs> and they won't let us like hook them up to like electrodes or anything. <laughs> so we know what they do. Right. And we know the patterns that they create. We see what they write and we hear them in oral argument um, and we hear them speaking out on the circuit, which is the subject of most of my research, recent research, trying to figure out whether that matters to people when they see them speaking. Um, and so um, many of those opportunities afford the justices a chance to say, hey, we care about legitimacy. We care about public. We, we, we you know, we consider, you know, these things. Uh, and they say those things sometimes. Um, and there's some evidence, although most of it is really anecdotal because we haven't had very many chief justices, um, that the chief justice is particularly concerned with the institutional strength of the court. And so we have stories that we can tell. Um, and, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, of course, in the healthcare cases is one such story uh, where the chief appears to be deciding cases in a way that aren't exactly what his preferred policy would be, but instead are at least cognizant of the legitimacy needs of the court. So all the justices could do that. And we see the justices and their opinions over time in dissents and concurrences and majority opinions mentioning the legitimacy of the court. Um, I can't imagine an institution that wouldn't at least think about whether or not a particular course of action is going to harm the institution and its power. But what the trade-off is, is difficult for anyone to see. And I think that probably varies by justice and it varies by case. Well, and it's, it, it seems, uh, if I'm following that logic, that uh, it's an interesting era that we are entering now because with the 6-3 conservative majority, the chief's capacity to swing the court is now actually diminished. Uh, that right. is, if the five other conservative justices decide, damn it, we're going to forge ahead, uh, even if he sides with the liberals, he can't create a majority. Right. And that's I think that's what brought so much attention to this particular uh, appointment. I mean, it's true that, you know, the swing from Ginsburg to Barrett in terms of ideology is huge. Right. But the swing from the court is just from five to four to six to three. But yes, the, the pivotal justice is no longer the chief. And that could have some pretty major consequences for outcomes.
shifting to another area that and feel free to punt if this goes too far beyond your area of expertise but in thinking about uh the often discussed prospect of democrats uh successfully um enacting legislation to increase the number of seats on the supreme court um um pejoratively referred to as court packing. Do you have a sense of what the risks and rewards might be uh, first for the country as a whole, uh, and, and especially in terms of the, of the legitimacy of the court, if uh, the Democrats were to add more seats to the court? It's a tough, that's a tough question, right? Which is why exactly why the um, vice president has been punting it, right? Yep. <laughs> Saying, well, we'll study this, right? Um, you know, so it's perfectly constitutional for the Congress to change the size of the court. And that has been done over time. It's been a long time since we've done it. We've had nine justices for, for a very long time. So it's certainly a norm that we have nine justices um, and that, you know, Congress doesn't create seats on the Supreme Court, but it's not unconstitutional to do so. But just because something is constitutional, of course, doesn't mean that it's um, a good idea. So I think, you know, there are uh, some law school professors. So law school professors have been talking about changing the court forever. So there's always a a huge literature in the law reviews about, you know, creating a a court that chooses the cases for the Supreme Court and changing the size and putting term limits on the justices. And that, that is a very rich literature that people have been thinking about for a long time. And so there are um, reasons to suspect that in the current climate, given, you know, the whole mess with Garland and then Barrett um, and the behavior of the Senate, um, you know, there's some argument to be made that it could actually help the Supreme Court's legitimacy to have Democrats add seats because it might end up stopping this battle um, between the parties over the court and therefore get them back to some sort of a more sane system of, of, of nominations and confirmations. I mean, back in the day, even very conservative and very liberal justices had bipartisan support of senators. And there were a lot of them on the yes side. There were very few no votes. Um, so this um, polarization that we've seen in politics generally has really, you know, bled on to the Supreme Court. And when that happens at the confirmation nomination stage, it's, of course, going to start affecting the kind of justices that are appointed and the behavior that they engage in. Right. So if we can get this sort of hyper partisan toxicity out of the system somehow, that might in the long run help the Supreme Court and, and lend it you know, a more legitimacy, because now we have a court that isn't sort of, you know, partisanly that's not even a word, um, split, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it could end up to be this horrible, you know, battle between Democrats and Republicans forever. And we end up with, you know, Supreme Court justices that appear to be completely beholden to the legislature, which wouldn't do the institution any favors. So so I recently saw, and I'm embarrassed to say that this is an article from over a year ago. Uh, so even though I try to follow politics closely, I miss this one. There's this a lot art- going on. <laughs> there is a lot, especially in 2020. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, this is an article by Josh Lederman at uh, NBC News. And he's describing um, a proposal by then candidate uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, and uh, the plan would overhaul the Supreme Court by expanding the number of justices from nine to 15 with five affiliated with Democrats. I'm not sure how they would be chosen, but five affiliated with Democrats, five justices affiliated with Republicans, and then five 
apolitical justices chosen by the first 10. Uh, have you heard of that proposal before? Sure. That's, yeah, one of a, one of a, a very long string of proposals, I think. But yeah. Do you have um, uh, either a personal judgment or a scholarly judgment regarding if we could somehow magically move from the status quo to that world, um, is that the kind of structure that could effectively preserve or, or bolster the court's um, uh, appearance or reputation as uh, less partisan uh, than the other branches? I mean, I, I guess that would build in um, sort of an even playing field, you know, that a, a president getting an inordinate number of Supreme Court appointments um, would be able to create. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's there are pros and cons to all of these things. Um, and in some ways, you know, delineating five Republicans and five Democrats might just make that whole principled decision making thing uh, less likely to be perceived by the public. Right. So as soon as we start, I mean, the justices balk at being labeled yeah. as you know, Republican or Democrat. And maybe in that situation, if you had a you know, explicit label, like, would it, would it make party matter more? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, shifting gears a bit, uh, but to a topic that has been quite salient in 2020, I want to talk a bit about race. Uh, and uh, I'm curious about this in part because I, in prepping for this episode, uh, saw an article by uh, Gibson and Caldera. I think Caldera has published a few articles uh, in this area. Uh, before. Both of them have, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, I'm an Ohio State grad, so through friends oh, and political science, I, I knew about Caldera. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but in this article uh, from the 90s, they at one point suggest that uh, African-American uh, voters or citizens may have historically been more, uh, quote, uh, reality-based, which I took to mean that their level of trust in the courts was more responsive to current events and to actions taken by elected officials than among uh, white voters who might have a more, I believe the term was more diffuse uh, 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 kind of support. I wonder uh, if you either have a reaction to that theory or if you uh, have uh, um, uh, any thoughts uh, in particular to this question of whether uh, race might uh, moderate or, or alter the extent to which uh, uh, a given voter's trust in the courts or perception of the legitimacy is going to be driven by uh, the day-to-day -day, uh, actions of the court? Yeah, so you've, with that question, just tapped into like the biggest debate in the legitimacy literature. Cool. So there's a huge discussion about um, whether or not people's attitudes about the court are driven by some sort of deep-seated, socialized sort of feeling of, you know, this reservoir of goodwill is the way they put it, or instead, whether it's a reaction to decisions. And so there's this discussion about does, does diffuse support, is diffuse support driven by specific support? And specific support would be, you know, sort of your, your um, inclinations about the decisions that they're making. So are these good decisions or bad decisions? Do I like them? Do I hate them? Um, and so there, for a long time, we thought that people's diffuse support for the court. So this deep seated commitment to the institution was, um, you know, able to be separated from the day to day decision making of the court. So even if I see a decision that I hate, or I see a string of decisions that I hate, I still feel like the court is a legitimate part of the, um, 
the American government and then I and I support its institutional position and I think it's important to democracy and I would never do anything to try to get rid of it, right? Um, but there's new research suggesting that maybe uh, diffuse support is driven at least in part by uh, specific support and that some people will punish the court for bad decisions. So if you don't agree with the decision, you're going you're gonna to say that you don't agree with the institution or you don't support the institution. But that's very controversial because there's lots of different articles that come out on either side of that. Um, but in terms of African-American support for the Supreme Court, um, they, there, are, there is some pretty good evidence that there is a generational difference between African-Americans who grew up during the civil rights era in the Warren Court yep. and African-Americans that are growing up now. And we've had conservative Supreme Courts for quite a while, and they haven't undone everything that the Warren Court did, but they have scaled back those decisions and protections often. And so the, the thinking is that your socialization, so where you grew up and how you grew up and what the environment was like when you grew up, um, could very well affect the way that diffuse support develops. And for African-Americans, this is particularly clear because there's such a distinction between the policies um, in the 60s from the Warren Court versus the policies in the 90s and the 2000s um, with the Rehnquist and then um, the um, Roberts Court. So... Um, so yeah, there's some fascinating research there. Uh, and, and part of their research too, that's I think really particularly interesting. And this is the topic of one of their, so Gibson has a new book with Nelson on um, black attitudes toward the legal system in general. Um, and part of Gibson's research talks about symbols, which mm -hmm. I think is sort of fascinating. So that, you know, in trying to understand why the Supreme Court is this special institution, um, they suggest that part of that specialness is the bench, the robes, the gavels, all of those symbols that come along with the Supreme Court as an institution that no other institution has to the same degree. Yep. Um, their new uh, research suggests that while that happens and is true for white Americans, so the, the more you expose them to symbols of justice, the more they like the Supreme Court and, and lend institutional legitimacy to the Supreme Court, that doesn't operate the same with African Americans. And much of that is likely explainable by the uh, relationship between African Americans and the police, and the police are seen as part of that justice system. So it's really, really fascinating to think about how the experiences you've had in the institutions related to the justice system might then bleed into your support for um, national institutions like the Supreme Court. So as a likely final question, I want to shift to something that is timely as we arrive at uh, election day, although this, of course, has been an election with unprecedented levels of early voting. So the election is underway uh, in a really profound sense. But um, we're also seeing that uh, the Supreme Court is being called upon to adjudicate uh, in state level disputes regarding election rules. And I just saw uh, as recently as uh, today at The Guardian, uh, but other um, outlets have reported this, the Supreme Court rejected a last-minute plea from Pennsylvania Republicans to overturn a three-day extension of the absentee ballot uh, deadline. Uh, hugely consequential ruling in one of the most closely watched swing states in the presidential election. So 
It was occurring to me this morning as I was walking uh, into uh, the office that uh, the court could potentially sustain its legitimacy by deciding we're just not going to get involved. So no matter what the case, we're just going to let the just we're not we're going to decline to intervene and let the states uh, sort it out. That that would be one strategy uh, to bolster the legitimacy. Uh, I could imagine another might be okay. We will intervene, but we'll try to over time balance the ruling so that we're not consistently ruling in favor of one party or the other. I wonder if you have any thoughts on the strategy that if there is a strategy that could be effective for the court in bolstering its uh, legitimacy regarding uh, election cases. Oh, I have so many thoughts. Um, so you might remember Bush versus Gore, right? In Vaguely, yes. Um, yeah. So in that case, you know, the Supreme Court interceded in Florida election law um, to stop a recount. Um, and a lot of people argued that this was going to kill the Supreme Court's legitimacy, right? That this was the end. And Justice Stevens in dissent basically said, you know, the winners are unclear of this election, but the loser is absolutely clear. And that's the courts and confidence in the courts. Um, but it turned out, you know, I mean, people were so happy that it was over mm. that they really didn't hold the court accountable in a negative way. So even people who disagreed with the court's decision and who wanted Gore to be the winner, um, you know, had a small blip of a negative sort of affect toward the court, but then got over it. So, you know, that was in 2000. And I think everything's different in 2020, which is why I've been turning down media requests left and right, because I'm like, I don't know, like, seriously, I have no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> um, so things are different now. And, you know, so the, the decisions that the court has made so far, you know, so the Wisconsin case was a disappointing case um, as well for, for people who were looking for more ability, looking for expanded ability for people to vote. Yeah. Um, but the court has determined sort of, <laughs> and I say sort of because election law is um, messy, um, basically that if it's a federal court that intervenes, they're going to turn it down and not allow it. But if it's a state court that intervenes, they're going to let that happen. And part of that is the deference that our system pays to states in elections, right? Yeah. So elections are state things. And so the court is kind of so far distinguishing between um, changes that are happening in the courts, whether or not, whether they're state or federal courts, they're distinguishing between those two sets of courts. And, and so they and, sort of, and, and, and the Wisconsin decision fits that paradigm. Yes. The Wisconsin decision was a federal court that, that ruled. And so they um, overturned the federal court's decision, which would have changed the rules of the election too close to the election date. And so generally speaking, they're, they're, they're looking for federal courts to stay out of this um, and then allowing state court processes to play out. Now that's not true of Bush versus Gore, of course. Right. Um, but um, that appears to be the direction that they're heading. I think, you know, in terms of whether or not this election goes uh, into court in the same sort of way that Bush versus Gore or the, the 2000 election did, I think it's obvious that the best course for the Supreme Court would be to not decide the case. And this court, you know, has punted cases uh, in the last few years. And some of that is attributable to what we think is Justice Roberts's interest in the legitimacy of the institution. So I think in election law, that's, you know, maybe particularly the case. But who knows? It's 2020. Nobody knows what happens anymore. <laughs> that's it for Tatter. I want to thank Sarah Benish for taking the time to talk with me. 
For more information on Benish and the work that we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you use Twitter, you can mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review, or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. If you want to offer financial support to Tatter, you can go to Patreon and become a patron. Although, if you are a current student at the college where I teach, I'm afraid that I cannot accept your support. But for everyone else, come on in. The water's just fine. In any case, thanks for listening. Continue to engage in physical distancing and also wear your facial covering. And be well.